Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Okay. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, We're excited to have you with us today. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Hey, everyone. Um, We are starting something a little bit fun today. It's just a founding fathers fun fact because I stumbled upon something interesting on Reddit and I thought that I might share it with you guys. Do you want to hear? Yes. Absolutely. Let's hear it. Okay. The first one is just today I learned the subreddit on Reddit told me that the founding fathers had a great love for ice cream. And it told us that Thomas Jefferson created an 18-step recipe for vanilla ice cream that is housed in the Library of Congress. And George Washington was said to have spent $200 on ice cream in the summer of 1790, which is already kind of a lot for ice cream. Um, But some great top commenter on Reddit said that $200 in 1790 today is $5,906.43. Oh my gosh. Gosh. So I love that. I really fact. enjoyed that. <laughs> it's too hot to not spend uh, $5,906.43, to be completely honest. Oh my That's gosh. Insane. I, wow. I eat so much ice cream. I feel super validated. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, it's American. <laughs> it must be. The founders did it, then we should be doing it, right? That's Absolutely. <laughs> Um, And then this other one is maybe just something to talk about later, but it kind of got me thinking. So this post said, we've only had one amendment in the last 29 years. What should be the next amendment in the Constitution? So I found this fascinating and just sort of scrolled through. And the top comment right now is anything that Congress passes, they shall not be made exempt from. I mean, I I think that would probably get really widespread support, and I totally agree. Yeah, that's a good one. I don't know if that would be the one that I would pick. I need to think about this. It's a great Mm -hmm. question. Yeah. There's like five things that come to my mind right now. (laughs) I don't know what what the one would be. Yeah. Just to give you a smattering of the top choices, the next one was every publicly elected or government appointed official shall once a year be subjected to a federal audit of their finances to ensure corruption cannot infiltrate our government. The next one was campaign finance reform. Um, and somebody says, like I once heard, our elected officials should have to wear those NASCAR suits. That way we know who they're sponsored uh-huh. by. So these are just a few of my favorites. Oh, and Aaron and Zach, you'll like this one. We need to end ambiguity on privacy. Privacy is implied in some of the amendments, but we need a clear statement of each individual's rights to privacy from government and other institutions, corporations, religious institutions, et cetera, because technology has been made possible in the surveillance scene in a way the framers could never have anticipated. Ooh, interesting. Mm-hmm. We definitely will talk about privacy and surveillance at some point. It's a topic Zach and I really like. Yeah, definitely. And that's like, it, it's interesting to consider that because you, you mentioned corporations, like 
okay, we have a right to privacy from the government, but what about like tech companies and things like that? Because a lot of those things are just opted into and we don't even know the extent of what we're dealing with. So um, those are all really cool and interesting little thought experiments. I would, I would choose maybe one something about like transparency for bills, like bills cannot be these huge, incredibly complex. I know for a certain extent they have to be, but I would almost say that whatever the bill is that people are putting up to vote needs to be basically simple and understandable, um, you know, or at least have some kind of summary page where it's not 700 pages and all bills have to be read before they're passed. Maybe is another good one too. Um, <laughs> so those are, those are cool little thought experience cast. Thanks for sharing that with everybody. Yeah. Th thank you. I just thought of one that I think would be my number one and it's um, term limits. I think that's what I would pick term mm -hmm. limits for Congress. I think that would make a lot of good and interesting changes. Okay. Well, uh, great thought experiment. Please, uh, everyone write us in with what you think should be added to the constitution. Maybe we'll do a little run through of ones that we get next time. Yeah, that'd be really cool. So now we're going to move into what we're doing today. So today we're going to be talking about voting rights. It's something that is a big deal right now. There's a lot of states passing laws that have to do with voting. And so um, we wanted to go ahead and give some background on this topic and get into a discussion about it. Yeah, hopefully you enjoy the episode today. Okay, well, we're gonna get into it. So um, we wanna start with what the framers thought about voting. So voting was one of the first things that was addressed by the framers, even before the constitution. The Declaration of Independence says, Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So a, a major foundation of the establishment of our government was based on this idea that the people are going to rule and the people do that primarily through voting. So it's really, really important to the founders. Ultimately, they left the specifics of voting up to the states. So Article 1, Section 4 says that the states control the time, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives. We talked about the Electoral College before. That's laid out in the Constitution to control how we vote for the president. But otherwise, the states control elections. And so since the founding, there's been a lot of updates to voting over time. Um, Zach, did you have anything about the framers that you wanted to add? The framers originally, I mean, the voting was only opened up to basically property owning white men back in the framers time. But over the you know, couple centuries that we've been a nation, as Aaron mentioned, things have expanded and there's been more and more laws that have passed and even amendments that have been passed and ratified to expand voting rights to where we are at today. And so I just have something that Andrew Jackson helped advance political rights of those who did not own property but that still was only pretty much white men. And then, you know, it wasn't until the 15th and 19th amendments that things really changed for minorities, women, et cetera. So um, we can get into those specifics, but for the longest time, it wasn't, it was just white men that could vote. And even then it was those that owned property. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's where we started. And clearly that's not where we're at today. Voting rights have really developed over time. So um, to give some more specifics from what Zach just said, the 15th Amendment is one of the Civil War Amendments. So the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were passed at the end of the Civil War. And the 15th Amendment specifically gave voting rights to African-American men. 
women did not gain the right to vote until 1919 with the passage of the 19th Amendment. Native Americans gained the right to vote with the passage of the Snyder Act in 1924. And then the last kind of big one is suffrage for 18-year-olds to vote. It previously used to be just 21-year-olds, and 18-year-olds gained the right to vote with the 26th Amendment, which was passed in 1971 at the end of the Vietnam War era. And another really important piece of legislation that you've probably heard of is the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So this was legislation passed under the Constitution to ensure that state and local governments weren't denying citizens the equal right to vote based on race, color, or membership in a minority language group. Thanks, Erin. That's a pretty quick overview and really just goes to show you that like a lot of things in this country, we started out with the ideal and we didn't live up to the ideal at first. And then eventually over time, through a lot of petitioning and protesting and you know fighting, we slowly, slowly and slowly move closer and closer to that ideal, which is something I think that is good and maybe sets us apart a little bit as a nation, um, even though we weren't perfect in the beginning we are making strides over our history to incorporate everybody into you know, equal protection under the law in all respects. So thanks for the overview in terms of the, you know, the different laws and, and amendments and stuff. That's great. For sure. So I think now uh, we're going to get into, so why does this matter today, right? Like voting rights are a huge deal right now. Why are all these states passing laws about it? And why is it controversial? So I guess, Zach, I'm kind of curious to know what what you're thinking about all of this in terms of voting rights. Thanks, Erin. I think Georgia has gotten a huge share of the attention regarding these new voting bills, uh, voting rights bills, depending on side on the aisle on voting restriction bills. And I came across an interesting comment that I thought was expressed how I feel about it. Quote, one side is primarily concerned that all votes are legitimately cast. That is, each vote can be traced to the person voting. The other side is primarily concerned that as many people as possible have the opportunity to vote. And I felt like that was a pretty fair assessment and something that I think is honestly both can be achievable. So I am in no way a lawyer and I definitely have not read all of the different bills uh, that are that are floating around out there. But I think both elements are important, right? I think that if we should make sure that the people that are casting the votes are actual the ones that cast the votes. And then I think that we should have as many people, as many people that want to vote that are legally allowed to vote should be able to. So that's kind of where I stand on terms of voting rights today. I don't think that there should be any real reason why you can prohibit or, you know, restrict people that do want to vote to, you know, cast their vote. Yeah, um, I definitely agree. It's really interesting. When I started looking into this, I felt like I kept going further and further back. I started with looking at these sort of recent laws um, that states are passing and the reasons for them and then the, you know, catalysts for them. I, it just kept, I kept going further and further back into history. So, and recent history, not, not a long time ago, but where I ended up was a Supreme Court decision called Shelby County versus Holder. It was passed in 2013. And you may have heard of this. It's, I think in the conversation right now, it's, it was one of the really big deal Supreme Court cases in the last like decade. Okay, so the Voting Rights Act of, 60, of 1965 did a few things. Um, like I mentioned before, it got rid of poll taxes and um, literacy tests, things like that. Another thing that it did is that it required states who basically had a history of 
preventing certain populations from voting, in this case, African-American populations, require them to get clearance from the District Court of Columbia or the Attorney General before they made more laws regarding voting practices and procedures. So that's something that's in the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Okay, so it it created like an oversight board mm -hmm. to say, if you were a bad actor before, we're going to have a little bit of oversight. You can still make your laws, but you have to run them by us first. And we have to make sure that they're okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that the Voting Rights Act did. Now, in 2013, the Supreme Court passed a case called Shelby County versus Holder, and it invalidated that section, basically, that requires preclearance. It actually invalidated a different section, but the effect of it was that these states no longer have to seek clearance for different kinds of voting practices and procedures that they want to pass. And it was um, a political decision in that it was 5-4 with the five conservative justices voting for it and the four liberal justices dissenting. And I think that one of the reasons it's interesting is that it kind of shows, I think, some of the opinions about voting right now, um, especially when you're talking about, okay, well, are states passing laws to restrict voting based on, you know, minorities voting and that kind of thing. And the majority in this case basically made this argument that we don't have the same problems that we had in the 1960s and 70s, where states are actively trying to suppress voting. So we don't need these kinds of clearance procedures. I think that that's probably a prevalent thought in some circles right now. And then on the other side, there's this idea like, well, we need to do everything we can to protect voting, um, even if it's not as active as like Jim Crow laws, where there's still this kind of voter suppression going on. And we need to be really careful about that. And so I think that this decision kind of conceptualizes also these two competing sides when you're thinking about, you know, laws about voting and what makes sense right now. Interesting. Okay. I was not familiar with that case or the impacts that it maybe has had. So that's um, useful, Aaron. Thanks. Yeah, for sure. And then another thing when I was going back to, to looking at this is that I find it really interesting that a lot of the states that are getting attention right now for the laws they're passing are states that are sort of mixed in, as far as you know red or blue and that maybe were typical red states, but went for Biden in the 2020 election. So Georgia is a state like that. Arizona is a state like that. Uh, Texas, which went for Trump, was more mixed for uh, than anyone had you know really expected. And so, and these are some of the states that have gotten a lot of attention recently for the voting laws that they're passing. To me, I think there's a correlation there. I'll ask you then why why do you think that is? I would suspect I know, but but why do you what do you think the motivation is there? I mean, I think the motivation Georgia and Arizona are both. Republican controlled legislatures, their state legislatures are Republican controlled. And I think there's concern of, oh, well, are we going to start losing, you know, our, our seats to Democratic votes? And I think that's the concern of a lot of people is, okay, well, why are you passing these new restrictions? Do we actually need them? Or are you just worried about, you know, your state becoming more blue? I did some research on, I, I, most of it was on Georgia. Because it seems to me that was the one, that's the state that has had the most attention. And the things that I found in there, 
in my research were not in, in some cases, sure, there are restrictions if you look at it from an absolute point, but I didn't find that they were unnecessarily restrictive. And, and in some cases, they expanded voting, you know, windows and, and things like that. So I, the biggest one that always comes up, I think, first is the voter ID. So maybe that's the, the quote unquote restriction that, that people are, are most concerned with. I'm, I'm curious to hear from you what the restrictions are that, that you think are are bad because I I mean I would agree with you in terms of the motivation that these people are probably worried that you know the, the senators or the the representatives for these respective states are probably concerned about the way that the state's going but I didn't see anything in here that was suppressive or trying to suppress the vote or restrict people from voting so uh, maybe we we can get into kind of the meat of that now. Yeah, I mean, I think that the there are more restrictions on mail-in voting, so say the windows that you have, getting rid of ballot drop boxes, I think is a problem. And I guess for me, yeah, there's the specifics, but it's also just the necessity, I guess, of these laws. I just don't see why they need them. And so I, that's where I get really hung up. It's like, well, what is the issue you're trying to address by passing more laws about voting that are going to make it more stringent. And it seems to me that what, at least the rhetoric that I'm hearing is, okay, well, we're just super worried about voter fraud and we have to deal with voter fraud and make sure that no one is voting who shouldn't be voting. Okay, fine. There's not a lot of evidence of voter fraud and there was no evidence of widespread voter fraud the way that it was talked about in the 2020 election and so i think the bigger problem is not necessarily the specific restrictions but this backlash to this you know idea that there was a huge amount of voter fraud i think that is dangerous for democracy and there isn't we shouldn't be passing laws when there aren't problems that need to be fixed in that sense. So that's, I think, my bigger issue with this. But if the if the laws that are passing are not that restrictive, as you said, what's the harm in, in passing a law to make sure that if there is fraud in the future, maybe there wasn't this time, but if there is fraud going forward, that we can catch it or we have ways to ground that out? I think that, for, well, for one, we don't know exactly what the impact of these laws are going to be. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's kind of hard to talk about. But Getting rid of ballot drop boxes that, you know, means more people have to drive further to, you know, getting rid of drive through ballot drops, which is one of the restrictions that they want. You know, some of these uh, restrictions affect certain populations more than others. You know, voter ID is one of those. Um, Minority populations are less likely to have driver's licenses. And so you are affecting I mean, potentially you are affecting minority populations in particular with these kinds of laws. And I think that I maybe I'm also a little bit worried about a a slippery slope situation here where we start passing more and more restrictive voting and we get back into a situation where, you know, there are populations whose voices aren't being heard. And I guess I also think that I'm very much, you know, you said the quote before, I'm very much on the side of anyone who can vote should vote and expanding voter rights and making sure that that's covered. I'm way less worried about voter fraud because I haven't seen evidence that suggests that voter fraud is a huge issue. So So when I'm making the calculus mm -hmm. of like a trade-off here, if, Mm -hmm. you know, a few votes 
that are improperly or illegally cast, which happens. Um, I am more willing to, to be like, yeah, we should have a few illegal votes than, you know, potentially be restricting voting for people who should be voting. Okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of, I guess, how it breaks down. I have a couple things that, that I found that reinforce the reason why I feel like these, these voting bills are worthwhile. So regarding like the voter ID, right, that's the one that I think gets a lot of attention and is talked about the most. And, and you touched on it too, saying that sometimes it's hard for minority populations to get a, an ID. The bill says if a voter does not have a driver's license or ID card, that voter can use a current utility bill, bank statement, government check, paycheck, or any other government document that shows a name and address of this voter. If a voter so somehow cannot produce one of these forms of ID, that voter can still vote and cast a vote, a provisional ballot. And then it goes on to say that in this last election cycle, 97% of Georgian voters already had some form of government issued ID. So to me, requiring some form of proof to say, okay, here's who you are when you cast your ballot is not a restriction, especially if 97% of the state already has some form of ID. I mean, we have to show ID for so many things. We have to show ID for going on an airplane, for going into you know, a bar, for going into a courthouse, like there's so many areas that you need to show an ID for that I think voting should be one of them, honestly. I don't think that that's too much to ask. I, I don't think that that's necessarily a big hurdle. I know it is a hurdle. I'm not gonna say that it's not, but it's not, like you have four years between presidential elections. Like that's plenty of time if you do care about going and casting a vote that you can enable and recruit and, and enlist resources in your community or friends or family or strangers even to help you get that ID. So that's that's my take on the ID. I have some bit on the on the fraud part, but I just before I go to that, I want to see if you had any anything to say. I don't have a ton to say. I don't know. I don't have anything to say. Sorry. No, it's okay. I just I didn't want to like just keep keep going mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and not give you give you a chance. Yeah, regarding the fraud, I saw uh, something to say that now, like you, you were mentioning about these states that that are were predominantly red, um, and then they started to either flip blue or, in Texas's case, you know, kind of slide blue in the last election cycle, and how those state legislatures that are mostly Republican are, you know, now concerned. So that's why these these voting bills are coming up and being brought to vote. But I think also there's audits that are happening too. And so in the case of Georgia, I'm seeing some articles that are coming up to say that there's an article from July 9th that says more than 10,000 illegal votes were cast in Georgia in the November 2020 election, a number that will continue to rise over the next several months, potentially exceeding the 11,779 votes that separated Biden and Trump. And then I'm seeing some others that say that some ballots were double counted in Georgia, as well as another one that says that there was some chain of custody failures in terms of who controlled the ballots once they were cast, um, some of them from like um, voting um, drop boxes and things like that. So while I don't think that there are hundreds of thousands or millions of votes or anything like that that are being made fraudulent, I do think that there are some that are fraudulent. And in the case of the first headline that I read, it seems like it might be enough that it would offset just the state. From, of Georgia to be, you know, going for Biden and flipping it to go to Trump. So I just feel like there's good reason for these laws to be passed, especially since the restrictions, you know, quote unquote restrictions that are being in place are 
are not really restricting, oh, you can't vote anymore. And, and I think, in fact, the Georgia bill actually extended the time of like mail-in balloting and, and things like that. So anyway, that's that's just kind of why I think it doesn't hurt, but we don't know. Like you said, it is hard to gauge the impact of these bills. Yeah, I mean, I have not seen the 10,000 vote issue in Georgia, and that's like way, way more than anything I had seen. So I would need to go look into that. It doesn't sound right to me, but I mean, it's like headlines that you're reading. So obviously that's, you know, out there. Mm -hmm. This is the 2020 election was one of the most audited elections ever. And there were, you know, 50 plus lawsuits about it. And Mm -hmm. none, none of the lawsuits were upheld by federal or state courts. And, you know, to me, that just that's a lot of evidence of, you know, what kind of lack of voter fraud that there was. And so just the conversations of all these millions, which was um, Trump's claim, millions of of illegal votes. I mean, that is, uh, that's not even to me. I think that that was totally debunked. And um, there's like source after source about that. But that's just interesting that you're what you're looking at right now is like thousands of votes potentially. And that's not what I'm seeing in the stuff that I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. So I wonder where the disconnect is there. Yeah. We'll have to maybe offline kind of compare, like, you know, where, where's the, where's the discrepancy happening? Because I agree with you. I don't think it was millions of votes. That would be like, that would honestly be such a failure of our Republic that somehow we were allowing millions of votes to be cast fraudulently it would be shameful. So I think that that, that claim is, is indeed suspicious and, and uh, unfounded. But I think if there's, you know, 10,000 in a state or let's say it's 10,000 in a state, you know, that's a significant number. And states have, I mean, didn't Florida come down to about that in terms of the, the 22,000 election? So I just think if the number should be as low as possible. I mean, I think everybody can probably agree on that. And so hopefully it's lower and I hope that I'm wrong. And that it's not that high. But to me, it seems like if the sources that I'm seeing are correct, and there were 10,000, then having these voting rights bills or would help cut that down. So that that's kind of my take on that today. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that that is a, that's a fundamental, like the disagreement, I guess, would be the, the word for it of what, what is the risk of voter fraud? And I think if you disagree on what the risk of voter fraud is, that greatly impacts how you view laws that would, you know, in some ways restrict voting. The risk of of voter fraud is that you would end up with a candidate taking power that wasn't elected. No, sorry. I mean, like the how big of a risk that you think it is. Oh, I see. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't want voter fraud either, for sure. I don't, you know, I I think that our our elections need to be secure. One of the problems that, you know, I really had with the voter fraud claims of um, the 2020 election, at least, was that there were, I mean, the really real impacts of that. If we don't trust our voting system, then like we don't have a democracy. Like we just don't. And I think that the, you know, the claims of the election being stolen, perpetuated by Trump and by the, you know, the lawsuits and all the other things that were happening. I mean, that's what led to the January 6th insurrection is this idea that the election was stolen and peaceful transfers of power are really, really important to maintaining the democracy. And so, you know, the security and belief that we have in our voting system is really important. Like it is, it is not an insignificant thing that we can just not pay attention to. 
Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I 100% agree. I think that the claims were not founded, that it was millions of votes. And I think his rhetoric was inflammatory in terms of stirring that up. And I, I think it would have been a lot easier to say, you know, and we kind of talked about this after January 6th. We, this was like, I think the last conversation we had before we started the podcast was about the the January 6th riots and, um, you know, insurrection. And, you know, I think it would have been a lot better for him to say something along the lines of, listen, I disagree. We're going to challenge it in court and we're going to respect the, you know, we're going to respect the results of the audit or respect the results of the lawsuit. And there will of course be a peaceful transition of power. Like, I think that would have been a fine way to do it. I think, you know, we've, we disagree on the fact that he had maybe the he should have had the ability to challenge as much as he did. But I think that that by him saying kind of what I said, you know, just offhand would have made a lot better sense in terms of people's feeling of, of confident in the election. As you said, it, it was, you know, challenged heavily. And then a lot of those or all those lawsuits, I don't know all the specifics, probably like you, but were, you know, shot down is a good thing. I mean, it means that for the most part, they were secure. The reason why I'm, I am bringing up the stuff about Georgia is because this was this article is just from July 9th, the one that was alleging uh, eleven thousand mm-hmm. votes. So that's why I'm I'm bringing that up because I do know that those those challenges by the Trump team in November and December of 2020 were you know were not sustained; they were disproven. But this is say new evidence. So that's why I bring it up because if there's an additional audit or something like that that's happened that's collected more data since then, you know now that changes kind of some of the calculus and and the math behind you know, just specifically for Georgia, did Georgia go the way that it was supposed to go? Right. And that is interesting. I think they've, you know, they've done studies on this, that like the dead voter claim. I have no idea what's going on in Georgia. I should look that up, you know, with the, with the audits. I think the Arizona one is not, has not found, you know, any kind of like huge numbers as far as I know. But so like the BBC, for example, um, they looked into a list of 10,000 people in the battleground state of Michigan, who I think it was Trump, but may have been other supporters had claimed were dead, but voted So 10,000 people. And they found that this list was fundamentally flawed. You know, the, the occasions of people, of dead people, quote, voting in U.S. elections, it has happened, but the evidence suggests it's not widespread and that it's often down to like clerical errors Mm -hmm. where legitimate votes are received or it's like someone's son is voting and the father had died and they have the same name. You know, it's like a bunch of stuff like that, at least when you're talking about like dead voter lists. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, I think, a little bit different than what you're talking about. I don't, I'm not sure what the specifics are of the Georgia one, but there's been a lot of attention on those kinds of claims and mm-hmm. just not even, I don't even, I think you can call them study, but like audit basically after audit <laughs> um, of, of this election and, you know, much of it, if not the majority of it has come up with, you know, not widespread voter fraud. You know, the Dominican voting systems is currently suing Giuliani and I think other people <laughs> for like yeah. claims that they had rigged their machines. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that's, it's hard to win a, to win a libel suit, but they might win because that there just wasn't evidence that their machines were rigged. So there's a lot of that kind of thing. And so if you don't have this, you know, widespread voter concern in the background, you're just mm-hmm. less concerned about passing more laws about voting, you know, that might tighten up the voting as opposed to expanding it. 
I think that I I would agree with that statement 100%. And so maybe, you know, maybe where we disagree is not so much in the voting rights and the voting bills, but more of like, how do we ensure that there's not voter fraud? You know, mm-hmm. how, how can I be convinced? Cause it, cause you know, if, if I, if I can assume you for your position a little bit that you're not convinced that voter fraud is a, a widespread phenomenon that has a large impact in elections. So how do you, how do you get me to feel that same level of confidence? Because then I agree with you. We don't, we don't need the additional scrutinies, but you know, how do you make sure that I get there, I guess, is the, the question. Yeah. And I think that a lot of it is probably going to be more evidence. You know, I would, I would hope that that would make a difference. And, you know, I guess they're, they're doing these additional audits. They did audits before. So um, I'm not sure what the, what the continued difference is now, but we're now what a year and a half after the election stuff is still happening. Not (laughs) not quite. Only, only like seven months. Oh, seven months, seven months. Oh my gosh. This year has, wow. Um, (laughs) So so only half a year after the election. Only half a year. Yeah. um, Yeah. Yeah. This is still an issue. So, I mean, the, I think the question is for, for you more than for me, probably of like, what will convince you? And if, Mm -hmm. if I know you, I think it will be like statistics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was, I was kind of asking it rhetorically, but yeah, you're, you're hundred yeah. percent right for me. It's, it's going to be, if these, you know, new audits and whatnot come through and they show, you know what, things were chill, things were, you know, on the up and up and okay. You know, the results were what are, what we counted at the time in November. Okay, great. You know, that's, that's going to help me feel good. I already just to be on the record, I already don't feel bad. Like I already am on the site, you know, I'm not secretly being like, Biden's not my president. Like I, I accept the <laughs> results of the election. I'm not, I'm not going to be like conspiracy and, you know, hold out hope and do weird 40 chess kind of stuff to be like, well, actually it wasn't a legitimate election because blah, blah, blah. Like I accept this is the reality we live in. Biden's the president. So I would just think that if the audits come through and they reveal, you know, inadequacies or, or gaps in our voting, you know, integrity measures, that we can shore those up. And if there aren't gaps or anything like that, then, you know, even better like that, that just makes me feel even, even better. And my party lost. Okay. It happens. Like, I'm not, I'm not pissed about that. It's fine. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, Right. And that's how democracy has to work. Right. Like if we, if we're like protesting and, and won't agree to transfers of power when our parties lose elections, then, but like, obviously that's why the integrity of the election is so important. Right. Just got to make sure that that is that that is what's happening. And the, from the rules, everything I've seen, I think it uh, was an in, like an election that had integrity. That there was not this widespread voter fraud that would have made Biden win over Trump. Or you mean Trump win over Biden? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And and I you know I don't know I haven't sat down and done the electoral college math uh, for more on the electoral college. Refer back to episode two of the Reframers, um, but. You know, if say, for example, this is just hypothetical, say, for example, this Georgia claim is true, Georgia flips, you know, because of these 10,000 votes, would Georgia flipping have had an impact in terms of the electoral college outcome of the election? I don't know. But like, again, I'm not going to like conspiracy conspiracy theorist about it and be like, well, then technically it's not true. Like it's 2021 we're just going to move forward. And, and I, I hope that things are, are continuing to be good going forward. And one of the nice things that I did see in, in researching 
about Georgia was, let me pull it up because it was, it was an, it was a good, it was a good trend that Georgia has set record levels of voter registration and turnout in recent elections, including 2020. And that includes blacks and Hispanics. And that has been the trend for a decade. So to me that, you know, regardless and outside of kind of this narrow focus that we've been talking about here, it is nice to see that, you know, more people are registering to vote, more people are turning out like that's especially minority groups that they that they identify. So that's really good. And I think that that is a good thing. I think that that's a, a positive. Yes, totally agreed. And that 2020 election was a record election. Voting is, I mean, it's how we participate in our government. It's how we have democracy. So it's great to see that more and more people are voting. Yeah, definitely. I think you have to be a special kind of person to say, uh, yeah, actually, I don't think that that's a good thing. <laughs> that more voting is actually bad. Right. Yeah. Um, Can you vote yeah. less, please? That would be helpful. Um, great. So, I mean, what what else really do we want to talk about here today? I mean, just for fun, we can we can cut if we don't want. But what yeah. are your thoughts on the the Texas uh, House Democrats that got on the plane and went to Washington D.C. to like protest and all of that drama? Because I know there's a lot of people that had very strong opinions of they're they're neglecting their duty and they're taking taxpayer money to go and you know grandstand and blah blah blah. But then they're saying, well, we're standing up for freedom and democracy and right they're like and then there were the other side it's like they're patriots yeah um (laughs) yeah 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 I actually don't know I don't know a ton about it beyond just that they left um to prevent this vote I guess I just don't understand the longevity of it so maybe I need to know more about it but it's like almost a form of a like a filibuster right like Mm -hmm. you're you're leaving so that there isn't quorum in the state to be able to bring the vote. And we talked about the filibuster before. This is like similar to when, what is it? The House of Representatives used to have a filibuster that's Mm -hmm. based on quorum. So it it reminds me of that, but they're representatives of Texas, right? Like eventually they go back and what do they do? Just trade off who goes back when? Like, I don't actually understand the logistics of this. I think that as far as making a political statement goes, it was a powerful political statement. I mean, they're basically saying like, we don't want this to pass so much that we're going to like leave and we're going to actually prevent you from doing this. And it was a national statement. I mean, people paid attention to it. It it did bring attention to, to the laws that are being passed. So as far as that goes, I think that it was effective as maybe like a political move, but as far as what it practically will do, in the future, seems like it, the law is still going to pass at some point. Yeah. Like you said, it, it did bring attention. It was effective. It, it took maybe a regional or statewide issue and made it into a national thing. But in terms of its effectiveness in what the, they were protesting, I, I don't see how it matters. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I applaud them for taking a stand, I guess, but I'm like, well, it, it, you're going to have to come and cast that vote eventually. So I don't know. Right, right. It's yeah. kind of funny. Yeah, it'll happen. And then maybe there'll be more protests. Who knows? I, you know, I think that voting is interesting because of how it's developed over time. You know, we've, we've almost for all of our American history been fighting for voting rights in one way or another. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, just for women, it took like a hundred years to, to get a vote during when they passed the civil rights amendments in 
um, what was it, 1870, women were fighting for the right to vote and they didn't get it until 1919. Like that's, that Mm -hmm. was a huge process. You know, African-Americans getting the right to vote was a huge process. 18 year olds, you know, everyone, all of these different groups that have been, that fought for suffrage, it's just, it's part of our history. And I think that, you know, the development of voting law is actually still going to develop. I mean, there's even now it's, well, should 16 year olds have the right to vote? You know, there's arguments about felony disenfranchisement. So that's for people Mm -hmm. who, you know, are convicted of felonies. Some states you're not allowed to vote after you're convicted of a felony. Um, That's a huge issue. So I think that it's also sort of this continuous American thing, you know, where, where voting is so important to who we are as a country and it will just continue to, to be relevant, like always. Yeah. And it's something that I'm, I'm noticing as we talk about these various issues week to week, that that is the theme I think of our country. Right. And probably all countries, you know, I'm, I'm, I know more about our nation than other nations, but It just seems like, as we talked about in the gun control discussion, that, you know, gun rights are a part of our nation's DNA. You know, it's, it's baked into the cake. Um, As is gun control. As is gun control. Right. And, and as is, you know, voting rights and, and Mm -hmm. voting restrictions. Like, I, I think it's easy, at least I'll speak for myself. It's easy for me to get the sense that because we are at the latest date there ever has been in history, you know, today, <laughs> that we are somehow at the end, and that we're, we're striving to, you know, okay, if we just do this one last thing, you know, I, I heard somebody saying, when we passed and allowed for gay marriage nationally, that was like, great, we've solved all the problems, <laughs> you know, kind of like, naively thinking like, oh, now that gay people can can get married, like, we're good, we did it. And yep. then, you know, here we are, I don't remember how many years later, probably 10 years later, we're like, still, ironing out these issues. And so it's, I'm just noticing a trend that our work is never done as an electorate. Our work is never done as a citizenry where we're never going to get to the end. And so it's just this constant push and pull between, you know, making sure that we're living up to the ideals, kind of like I was mentioning in the beginning that were set forth and then, you know, discarding things that are not relevant and that, that drag us down and that are outdated and then, you know, implementing new things that are going to protect us going forward. Privacy, I think, being the big one going into the 21st century. So it's interesting to see and kind of take a historical bird's eye view to see we're just in the middle, right? We're, this is just act two, who knows when act three comes, but this is still just act two and, and we're just trying to make it better for everybody as best we can, as fast as we can. Mm. Yeah, I like that, well said. Thank you, right off the cuff. <laughs> Uh, Zach, ladies and gentlemen, just giving patriotic speeches out of nowhere, you know. <laughs> That's I, I'm, I need to be recording them in my uh, Patriot's Handbook by Jacqueline Kennedy's daughter, uh, get President Kennedy's daughter. So it's this great book I busted out for the 4th of July that's got patriotic speeches and poems and pictures and stuff. So maybe I'll start <laughs> recording them there in the back note section for wh- whoever I sell the book to eventually. Oh man, you should. Zach and I and Cassie spent the 4th of July together this year and it was very patriotic and so much fun. And Zach's got some great patriotic American attire. So we'll have to post something about, about that. We'll have to, yeah, we'll have to, to show you guys my suit. Um, so it's, uh, it's pretty snazzy. I like to bust that every now and then when, when there's a, 
a good occasion for it. <laughs> for sure. Okay. Well, you know, I think that probably wraps us up today a little bit, a little bit of a wandering kind of, I think, thoughtful discussion that turned out to be a little bit more ideological than stats based, maybe than I was expecting. Yeah. Same actually for me. This is another one that you can tend to get very in the weeds, like kind of like in control with, with a lot of statistics and stuff. But I think it's important to kind of talk about the, the high level philosophical stuff, you know, to yeah. know where you stand on things. And then you can reconcile that with the data to show, okay, does the data support my philosophical belief? Or if not, then, you know, maybe it's time that we, I change my opinion on policy. Like that's kind of how we scientific method our, our political stances here on the show. So I'm glad that we were able to talk it out how we did today. It was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, thanks, Aaron. I really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, for everybody listening at home, I hope you did as well. And we'll catch you next time. Have a great week. If you have questions about what we talked about today, or if you have a topic that you would like to hear us discuss, uh, please go ahead and email us. We're at reframerspod at gmail.com, or you can reach us on our other platforms, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook. Thank you for listening to the Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers Pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com. 